0: Hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals, and welcome back to another episode of Science in Podcast, presented by Science and Pictures Magazine. As always, there are two of us here. I'm one of them. One of your hosts, Madison Dix, is me.
1: And I'm the other host, and his name is Jared Elliman.
0: That's he. And we are here to take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature. So in this podcast, we're going to bring you a brand spanking new piece of science, hot off the science presses, Um, but we're not going to be like too nerdy about it because part of our mission is also to make science accessible and fun and um, go down a lot of rabbit holes and fun facts.
1: Yeah. So we're just trying to find like that perfect threshold of like nerdy to actually understandable.
0: Yeah. When I say we're not going to be too nerdy about it, that's an actual, that's a lie. That is a lie. (laughs) (laughs) We're incredibly nerdy, but we also like to laugh. That's, That's really the thing. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So this episode is special because Jared and I have decided that this month is shark month.
1: Yes, we did. And why did we decide that, you might be asking? Um, Why not? Sharks are really cool. There's a lot of shark-based articles out there. Um, June is a time where, especially now that restrictions are being lifted everywhere, people are going to be coming in more contact with sharks.
0: And above all else,
1: um, it pairs up well with our parent project, Science and Pictures, which is uh, slowly but surely churning out their vulnerabilities article, All About Sharks.
0: Yeah. So Science and Pictures is our is our mom. It's our parent. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's an awesome website and a magazine um, translating peer-reviewed scientific literature into comics. So they're the visual counterpart to what we do here on Science and Podcast. And mm-hmm. Becca, who creates those com- comics, comics... They're called comics. That's what she makes. Um, yes, is has turned out a whole series called Shark Vulnerabilities, and it's all about sharks and why they need our help and how we can um, protect them. And basically, there's a lot of shark love in the air, so we just wanted to dive into that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of love, um, just because this is Shark Month does not mean it isn't also Pride Month. So, Happy Pride! Happy Pride! Yay, yay, yay! So, um, if you couldn't tell, I'm queer. Um, so a happy Pride to me, and also a happy Pride to all of the LGTBQ+, and everyone who, um, you know, loves other people and doesn't judge them and isn't a d- about things.
1: Yeah, including all four of my parents.
0: Heck yeah! Happy Pride to everyone out there who doesn't fit into those strict boxes of heteronormativity and gender norms. Keep doing your thing, don't let anybody tell you who to be, and know that we love you.
1: Yeah, be your best self, my dudes.
0: Heck yeah. So, without further ado, Jared, what are we talking about? I know it's sharks, but like,
1: what's... So, um, I'm glad you asked, uh, because the paper I brought for us this week highlights the extremely important and ongoing role of zoos and aquariums in the realm of conservation, specifically captive breeding programs. Uh, This article is titled... Artificial insemination and parthenogenesis in the white-spotted bamboo shark, Chiloscyllium plagiosum. Uh, I published... love her! Yeah, she's a great shark. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and this was published in Nature Scientific Reports. Uh, for anyone that uh, does not know what the white-spotted bamboo shark looks like, its name is pretty reliable. Um, it is a tiny, two to three foot long shark uh, native to the Indo-Pacific region.
0: It is. It's long and noodly. It's got. Um... It's one of those sharks that's more like close to the ground, Um, Mm -hmm. mostly dark brown in color, and it has cute little white spots on it. And um, it feels like wet sandpaper. It does. (laughs) Yes.
1: Or if it's out of the water for a while, it does feel like regular sandpaper. Well, well, don't
0: do that. Don't take them out of the water. They need to be in the water.
1: (laughs) That is true. That is true. Hashtag protect sharks. Um, so, <laughs> this paper was lead authored by Dr. Jennifer Whiffles, a researcher at the University of Delaware whose primary research delves into the immunology, developmental biology, and healing capabilities of chondrichthyans, or cartilaginous fish, like sharks, rays, and chimeras. Um, if you missed that first part, these are all fishes that have skeletons of cartilage and not bone.
0: Cartilage, yeah. So, cartilage is a really awesome tissue. You have it, I have it. It's in our ears, that bendy part in the tip of our nose. Super strong, super flexible, not bone.
1: Not bone. So
0: fishes, not bony fishes.
1: Exactly. It should be said, uh, not to confuse things, that the ancestors of sharks were believed to be bony fishes, but uh, modern day sharks are obviously not. So uh, moving on. Um, Actually, before we move forward, um, in case you didn't read this episode's title, we are going to be talking a fair amount about shark sex, shark sex organs, and reproductive biology in general. If that's not something you want to hear about, you are welcome to stop listening now, but I personally feel that it's pretty important to be able to have an open dialogue about all the weird that happens during reproduction, and also that it's just a really fascinating subject to learn about.
0: All right, so this is a sexy shark episode.
1: This is a sexy, well, I mean, it is about artificial insemination, after all.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, interesting. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right, oh, yes. now that we know, like, the subject matter of what we'll be talking about today, which is sharks and artificial insemination, which is really mm-hmm. cool. Um. Here is where we take a small diversion into our fun fact corner.
1: I literally almost forgot. Okay. Yes. Fun fact corner. <laughs> I was about to keep chucking a log. Um. Do you want to go first?
0: I will go first. Um. And actually, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Okay.
1: Um.
0: So, I was brainstorming before we started recording about like, oh no, I didn't bring a fun fact. What's it going to be? I figured out what it's going to be. Um. So my fun fact actually does relate to pride. And my fun fact is that um, there are actually lots and lots of queer scientists in the world, and there is a place where they can get representation. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if anybody is queer and is a scientist or is interested in those things, check out the Instagram 500 Queer Scientists. It's 500 Queer Scientists, no hyphens or anything. Um, That's the Instagram of a really cool nonprofit organization, uh, which aims to bring more representation, connect, and amplify LGTBQ+, STEM community members. Um, so it's really cool. I mean, when we're talking about bringing diversity into academia, um, the queer voice is one that sometimes gets left out. So uh, I just wanted to plug them. So that's my fun fact this week is that that exists.
1: <laughs> Love that. Love that. Yeah. How cool. about um My fun fact is not about, um, well, not even about people, but... Um, I've been thinking a lot about a thing you said recently about natural selection being sort of a C plus system, Um, not like the computer coding language, like an actual, like a 71 on a paper. Um, And I just kept thinking about how many great examples of that there are in the world. Um, The most recent one I remembered was of the tiger beetle, which are some of the coolest insects on the planet. Um, You probably have tiger beetles around you. They're those really, really, really shiny looking ones that move way too fast for further of good. Um, If any of you guys are Animal Crossing players, you might have actually caught them in that game. They notice a really weird movement they do, where they go really fast in one direction, they stop, and then they go in another direction again. And that's actually mirroring what they do in real life, because tiger beetles um, move so quickly that their eyesight has not evolved to keep up with how fast they move. Um, This has actually been proven by scientific study. They... The best way that we can describe it is a sort of overwhelming motion blur that they literally cannot see where they're going as they're moving at top speed, but they're so fast that it doesn't matter. So there's no actual selection pressure to give them good eyesight because they still catch their prey just fine regardless.
0: They're too fast to see. and they don't They're
1: too fast crazy. to see. Nope, they don't yeah. care at all. They'll just stop, readjust, and still catch their food.
0: That is an excellent example of how natural selection is a C plus system.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's like the kid who like gets through school because on a football scholarship. Hmm? That's the tiger beetle. Like That is the
1: Tiger Beetle. Yeah.
0: No shade to that kid, by the way. <laughs>
1: oh no. Athletics are great. But... Yeah,
0: athletics are great. Physical intelligence is absolutely a thing. And the tiger beetle has it, and so do you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I wouldn't say it has ocular intelligence, but well, uh, you know, doesn't need it. That's really um... I love that fact. I love tiger beetles. Uh, but anyway, um, well, I guess it's not completely unrelated because there are tiger sharks. But anyway, we're going to get back into the paper. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, so now that we're done with our little fun fact corner, it's time to move over to the uh, jargon corner. My yep. first word for you is something you're probably going to be familiar with, uh, which is elasmobranch.
0: And just for newcomers, the jargon corner is where we pull out words from the article that we're talking about um that are just like crazy like scientific words that most people probably wouldn't understand and then we define them so Jared gives me the word i guess at what it means and then Jared tells me what it actually means and that's the dragon corner here we go mm-hmm. What's the word
1: <laughs> the word is elasmobranch
0: i know that one um or do i so elasmobranch i mean i know it applies to sharks and rays i think mm-hmm. also skates Yes. But I don't know how it differs from just the umbrella term of cartilaginous
1: fish. So remember the word we said earlier, chondrichthian?
0: Chondrichthians, yes.
1: That's the big umbrella.
0: Yes. Cartilaginous so in- fish and chondrichthian is the same.
1: Yes. So inside chondrichthies, you have the elasmobranchs, which are the sharks, rays, skates, guitar fish, anything that's like shark or ray-like. That's mm-hmm. one big divide. And then on the other side, you have the chimeras, which are the... Well, they're not just chimeras. Um, it's a very, very mostly extinct class. Um, we don't know actually what most of the relatives actually looked like because cartilaginous fish don't preserve well. But uh, those are the holosephalins. So there's two oh. branches. You have the shark skates and rays on one side. You have the chimeras and their ilk on the other side.
0: So like probably every shark or ray an, an, an average person has heard of is an elasmobranch.
1: Most likely, yes.
0: Yes. Unless you're like really into like ancient and like deep sea and like weird looking shark like creatures
1: Mm -hmm. uh shameless plug for helicoprion probably the coolest holocephalon to ever exist that's the one with the the saw jaw
0: really the curly saw face Mm -hmm. yeah
1: yeah that was a holocephalon um oh also because i like uh etymology uh elasmobranchii which is the uh name for the class. it actually stands for metal plated gills which i like the sound of
0: metal plated gills they don't have those
1: they don't, but it kind of looks like that from outside, doesn't it? Like, if you're just, like, looking at a shark from, from, from far away, you see these, like, gutter-like slits on both sides of their body, you I, know?
0: I guess. I mean, yeah, their gills do look more, like, sturdy than
1: those yeah. other fish. Sturdy is the word I probably should have said instead of gutters, but, um...
0: Gutter-like, sturdy. These are all words to describe what I look for in a partner. No. <laughs> <laughs> happy oh, boy. Birthday. All right. H- happy
1: <laughs> All right. So we have unjargoned Branchii. Mm-hmm. Next up is parthenogenesis.
0: I know this one too. So parthenogenesis is a form of reproduction in which a female uh, is able to give birth to viable offspring without any interaction with a male. However, it's not like direct cloning. She like reshuffles her own DNA.
1: So it sometimes isn't, it sometimes isn't. There's actually multiple different kinds of parthenogenesis. In the way that it happens in sharks, the way that we know it to happen in sharks, it's actually mostly the clonal variety.
0: Really? Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. The clonal variety. So they are like legit exact clones of the mother.
1: I wouldn't say they'll ever be like exact clones just because like even like asexual animals can still evolve because the copying of DNA is never quite perfect, but they're as close as you're going to get.
0: All right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So parthenogenesis is... When a female of a species is able to produce offspring without any interaction with a male.
1: Exactly. Um, I would say that it's going to be specific to animals that we usually know to reproduce sexually. Just because asexual animals like uh, little amoebas, they don't do parthenogenesis because asexual reproduction is, I think, the only way they can do it. So, Got like parthenogenesis is when like.
0: When it's special.
1: <laughs> exactly <laughs> but it does happen in a lot of animals um but you're totally right though it is the ability of probably a huge amount of female animals female is the key term there because it doesn't happen in animals that don't have sexes um the ability of female animals to develop one of their eggs without the need for fertilization so if you did high school biology you uh, have heard the terms mitosis and meiosis meiosis is the division of sex cells
0: yes so yes I was, I was demonstrating with my hands that i had no no no
1: I appreciated it. I appreciated that. But Parthenogenesis is basically meiosis without the need for for fertilization, to put a little more jargon in there.
0: Pretty cool. Pretty cool.
1: And like we talked about, sometimes you have near genetic copies. Uh, Sometimes you actually have a little bit of crossing over. For instance, uh, Komodo dragons and probably other kinds of monitor lizards, when the females give birth, they give birth to sons, male lizards.
0: Oh, through Parthenogenesis? Mm-hmm. That's crazy.
1: Isn't it? It has something to do with the way that their chromosomes are arranged, I'm pretty sure, but still really cool.
0: It just goes to show that gender isn't, and sex are not as cut as you think they are happy pride.
1: <laughs> they are not. Maybe we <laughs> should have a drinking corner about that. But yes, uh, <laughs> biological sex is not the same thing as gender and will never be. Never um, be. Yes, indeed. Uh, just to list a few animals that we know can uh, undergo parthenogenesis, we have aphids, stick insects, frogs, salamanders, turtles, lizards, snakes, birds, and of course, bony and cartilaginous fishes.
0: Heck yeah. And the green anaconda at the aquarium.
1: Oh, That uh, I may
0: or may not have worked at.
1: (laughs) Who knows? Um, (laughs) Okay, last up are the terms for the three main life strategies that animals use to reproduce. Do you know what these are called?
0: The main life strategies that animals use to reproduce. Hmm. Um, like... Sexual, asexual, and non-sexual reproduction or something? Like, what do you mean? So we're past
1: that point. We're talking, like, egg-laying, <laughs> live-birthing, live um, that stage oh, of
0: it. Oh, to give birth, not to... So you said reproduce, and so I was thinking, like, creating the... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Okay. So this is, like,
1: the actual, like, carrying to term or okay. not.
0: Okay, the way that... Okay, I understand what you're asking now. Okay, so that would be giving live birth, which is, like, mm-hmm. comes out ready. Mm-hmm. Um, laying eggs so it comes out in an egg and then it grows inside the egg outside of the body and then comes out when it's ready and then there's this weird in between where you like lay an egg inside the body so it grows inside the body inside the egg and then the egg hatches in the body and then there's live
1: birth like 95 percent of the way yes
0: oh i was close okay
1: very close so the three main words we have oviparity oviparity is the laying of eggs we have viviparity, which is what you said, live bearing. But in viviparity, you need to actually form a placental-like connection with 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 the baby. If if that doesn't happen, it's not true viviparity. Mm,
0: yes. So viviparity, you need like the placenta, um, whereas yeah. in oviviparity,
1: ovo viviparity,
0: ovo it's, it's literally
1: like a bastardization of those two words, ovo viviparity,
0: ovo viviparity,
1: also called a placental viviparity.
0: That's a that's a nervous word to say, <laughs> <laughs> but I like it.
1: Very good. Um, and uh, before we uh, move, move into the paper, I should say that all of those examples and more are all known from sharks. They do everything. Um, some sharks and rays form a placental-like connection. Um, actually, a little bit more on that later, which we will uh, actually jump into now.
0: All right, let's jump
1: in. Are we out of all the righty.
0: corner, or is this another?
1: We are out of the jargon corner pretty much. There might be a couple extra things.
0: Okay, but we're, like, we're, like, leaving the corner and, like... Yes. Okay.
1: good. So you good. and I have already left the corner. Goodbye, good. corner. Good. Okay. <laughs> the rest of it will make sense more in the context of the paper, I think.
0: All right. Let's, uh, yeah. let's dive into these shark-infested waters, which is a term that no one should use because they live there anyway. Mm-hmm.
1: If anything, it would be human-infested shark waters. But, um, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So by far one of the most challenging aspects of shark and ray conservation is the huge amount that we actually still have to learn about specific species. Sometimes even specific populations of that species. What little we have learned has shown us that elasmobranchs, the shark's rays and skates, are easily several times more diverse in their biology than birds and mammals. I read this in a paper, I don't remember the exact figures, but sharks as a class are like at least six times more diverse and four times more, more diverse than birds or mammals. I might have that reversed, but either way it's true.
0: Wow, so like six times more diverse than one of those groups and four times more diverse than one of the, oh wow.
1: Exactly. They can Um, put
0: diversity on.
1: They sure do. Um, Part of it is the fact that they've been around for at least 450 million years, which is easily a hundred million years longer than both of those other groups. But um, you know, they're still very diverse. Um, Sharks alone, for example, like i just said, encompass the entire reproductive spectrum from egg layers, live birthers and bearers, there's even different types of intrauterine cannibalism um, when oh, that's yeah. when uh-huh, that's when developed young uh, consume nearby ovulated eggs and in the case of the sand tiger shark their fellow siblings. Yeah, sand um... tiger
0: sharks have two uteruses. Mm-hmm. Each uterus, um, there'll be multiple little babies growing in there, and the one that grows the biggest, the fastest, eats the other ones, and only not one... quite.
1: It's the one that grows teeth the first.
0: Oh, okay, that is true. <laughs> It's not always about size, folks. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay. So the one that gets teeth first will eat the other ones. And so like only one survives from each uterus mm-hmm. and then they're born. And immediately after they're born, they fight to the death. Just kidding. That lasts. <laughs> but the other part of it is true.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, if anyone's wondering uh, why, um the, the plus side of this is the babies are born about two feet long, which coming out of a 10 foot long shark is huge. Um, sharks are not born of that size standard. Um, And also, the babies already know how to hunt by the time they're born. So that's another benefit. Also, they're very well nourished, which is the third one.
0: Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, that shark put a lot of effort into creating all of those offspring. And instead of, you know, some of them not surviving and that energy, you know, being dispersed into the food web, it goes right back into her own offspring. So like, that's pretty, pretty nifty. Talk about family first eggs in a strange <laughs> roundabout way <huh? laughs> oh,
1: i like that one i like that one um now unfortunately there is another side to this coin of diversity in that there will never be a one-size-fits-all uh, solution to protecting a lot of um there just won't um not only must their needs be evaluated on at least a species-by-species basis but like i said for many sharks and rays their needs have yet to be learned and understood um, if only that task was a simple one. It is a lot harder to learn about marine animals than animals on land, because that's not the realm that we're
0: from. We don't breathe down there.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh, that is to say that this lack of knowledge is certainly not for lack of trying. Um, it's more the gathering long-term and in-depth data from any wild fish poses unique challenges for long-havers like us, challenges that modern technology have not yet provided solutions for. In many cases, though, scientists have overcome these hurdles with the help of institutions that are all too often thought purely of as places for entertainment. That would be aquariums.
0: I know those. Yeah, zoos and aquariums are actually really important sites of research for understanding animals, and for aquariums specifically marine animals and marine ecosystems and habitats it's like
1: exactly exactly um before anyone gets the wrong impression though i am in no way trying to say that every public aquarium or zoo actively engages in conservation and otherwise scientific efforts um most zoos i don't like um but there are some good ones um conservation and high standards for husbandry do very often go hand in hand and of the many thousands of public zoos and aquariums around the world 241 have the distinction of being accredited by the AZA, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Um, Madison knows a lot about this organization. It sets extremely strict standards for everything, from animal care and wellness, on-site veterinary care, and of course participation in community level conservation efforts. Institutions accredited by the AZA must meet quite literally every single one of these standards and failure to do so um, results in that accreditation being revoked very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um you can get reaccredited, it's not easy.
0: Yeah. It's AZA accreditation is a it's a big it's a big hurdle and for institutions that are accredited, you can you can trust pretty well that they have really good animal care, that they're doing good research and that they're doing conservation work and education. So it's it's good.
1: Exactly. So it is institutions like these, the AZA ones, that I have in mind when I do talk about places that offer scientists those otherwise inaccessible looks at the animals they're trying to to protect, through individuals that are safely accustomed to the human gaze. Yeah. Indeed. Now, uh, this is also something you know a lot about, but one of the most important programs that AZA-accredited places participate in are SSPs, which are short for Species Survival Plans. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. These are plans for large-scale breeding programs for certain threatened species. If that species is kept by an AZA zoo or aquarium, they are required to participate. Um, In the most dire cases, SSPs work to ensure the survival of healthy captive-bred and born populations of animals that have become extinct in the wild. That's the worst case. Um, In the short term, this means keeping precise records of exactly who mates with who, and even matching up mates by their DNA profiles to encourage genetic diversity.
0: Making sure that we don't have brothers and sisters doing the do, you know.
1: Exactly. Um, Individuals are sometimes even transferred between institutions in order to ensure the right pairing. Of course, the first step is understanding the conditions required for that pair to mate in the first place.
0: Yes. Which for some species is like really, really complex.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Just to uh, throw another wrench in it, well, not a wrench, but of all the largest sharks in the world, we've never seen them actually mate. We've seen attempted copulations. None of them we've actually seen mate in the wild.
0: That's accurate. Yeah, mm-hmm. although we can infer um, some information about the mating behaviors of those species based on other adaptations. One of my favorite examples is for great white sharks: the female's skin is actually three times thicker than the male's skin, and pregnant females are often um, observed. It's it's been recorded that most pregnant females have like bite marks on them. So we do know that biting is involved (laughs) in copulation for great white sharks and that Mm -hmm. have evolved literally thicker skin in order to survive it.
1: Absolutely. Also, if you are familiar with skates, a lot of the thorns on their body are used for mating purposes as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who would have thought? Um, So as we've already touched on, learning the nitty gritty, nitty, the nitty gritty -gritty details of, of shark reproduction is a lot easier said than done, um, Actually, I shouldn't have said this yet, but uh, like I just said, we don't actually have any record of those large species mating in the wild. That's how tough it is. Of course, there are those inferences, but fact remains. But we um, haven't seen
0: it. We haven't seen
1: Exactly. It. Someone, someone somewhere really wants to see it. Um, but at least for the far more numerous tiny sharks of the world, the study of aquarium specimens can answer questions that simply can't yet be asked of sharks in the wild.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Take, for example, the white spotted bamboo shark, the subject of this paper. We've already talked a little bit about them. Um, These adorable little egg-laying sharks, that's oviparous sharks, Mm -hmm. um, are about two to three feet long at adult size and inhabit the coastal waters of the Indo-Pacific region. Beyond their diet, though, little more is known about these sharks' ecology. Besides the fact that ongoing habitat loss and unregulated fishing are steadily making them a rarer sight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, As such, they are classified as near-threatened by the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature.
0: The ones so many that acronyms All the animals are doing
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, thanks to AZA aquariums, though white-spotted bamboo sharks are broadly available for study, and we breed them a lot, um, which has allowed for a pretty crucial deep dive into their reproductive biology and the creation of a healthy captive-bred population.
0: Heck, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So scientists have since learned that three important factors—at least three—must uh, be taken into consideration when breeding to ensure the genetic diversity and successful pairing in this species of shark. One. Females go through a two to three month yearly cycle where they lay a pair of eggs every six to seven days. So that's uh, a little before that is going to be the best time to do it.
0: Two, That's a frequent period.
1: Exactly. It's a lot of eggs. Um, Two, females can actually store sperm in a specialized gland uh, for use up to four months after mating.
0: Oh, I love that. I love it when animals can do that. It's like, I'm just going to save this for later. Exactly. I love that.
1: Do you think they actually think that in their mind? I'm just going to save this for...
0: I mean, no. Like, <laughs> we think. Like, there is a lot of debate about, like, whether we think because there is language or whether, like, we think, whether we think in words or whether we form words in order to describe feelings and, like, all of that kind of stuff. So, like... Who, Madison,
1: uh, Madison, Madison, this is sharp muscle. I... Yeah. <laughs> oh boy that's a fascinating subject but another time
0: yeah another time so to answer your question no they probably don't think that but they do it, i i think that when i hear it
1: <laughs> very good <laughs> and number three uh females uh, can actually reproduce on their own via parthenogenesis which makes those essentially clonal young um the problem with having clonal young is that they don't actually contribute to further genetic diversity very much yeah
0: about. all of that that genetic diversity that's so important in our species survival programs the reason for that is if you don't have genetic diversity in a population um then you get jay leno <laughs> <laughs> so mean <laughs> <It's> funny
1: <laughs> my apologies to the leno family um, thanks to DNA fingerprinting, uh, fingerprints in quotes because DNA does not have fingers, it is now possible to keep track of those parthenotes. Um, a parthenote is a product of parthenogenesis. A really
0: parthenote cool word. is a baby who has no daddy.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, they are kept track of uh, to ensure that those pups that do have fathers were paired correctly. If only that were the only challenge we have yet to conquer. Hmm. See, as good as we've gotten with determining shark parenthood, there's still the logistical issue of making a great pairing happen when those sharks are geographically far apart. Um, as I mentioned earlier, any AZA institution that keeps a specific species is required to take part in its species survival plan if one exists. That, of course, means that males and females with the best set of complementary genetics won't always be in the same facility or even in the same general region. Um, transportation by a truck, plane, or other routes are, of course, still options. But anyone who has done so with marine and aquatic animals would probably be the first to tell you how absolutely nerve wracking that can be for the humans and the non-humans involved. Yeah. After all, you can secure a tank and all the life support systems you're probably going to need, but that still doesn't stop the water from sloshing around the entire time with the animals along with it. Um, it's like
0: being in being in a tiny mobile hurricane.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, uh, I, don't, I wouldn't wish it on my, I might wish it on my worst enemy, but I wouldn't wish it on sharks. Um For that reason and more, he's some
0: say Jay Leno, but not sure. <laughs>
1: he's probably yeah. He's probably be he's probably my enemy now. That's a good point. Yeah. Again, my apologies to the Leno family. Um, <laughs> for that reason and more, some scientists have set their sights on the prospect of not actually having to shovel mates coast to coast through the use of artificial insemination. Shark sperm. Shark sperm. What's in the world. Oh yes. Now, if you're familiar with the concept of artificial insemination, uh, for continuity's sake, we'll use AI here from here on on, because I don't want to say that every time. Um, you've probably learned about it as it relates to humans. Um, lots of humans don't want... I'm going to not say that, because I was like, most humans don't want to do it with a man, and I'm like, probably shouldn't say that out loud.
0: I actually read really <laughs> <know> that, that... <laughs> but that's your first thought. You're like, this exists because women do not want to be with men.
1: <laughs> it only makes sense, but... <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, uh I mean a lot of the reason for it for artificial insemination, I mean, it helps uh like same-sex couples reproduce. It helps couples with um like infertility reproduce. It helps um it's just like another option, you know. Absolutely. So I don't think it has to do with, you know, people people hating men. I mean, <laughs>
1: See, now that you said that, I I have to leave that part in because there's no good place to cut it. So thank you for that. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) But yes, if you're familiar with the concept, you're either a farmer or know it in in the concept of humans. Um, Mm -hmm. But really, anything that makes use of sperm can be successfully artificially inseminated in theory. Um, Like, we're talking insects if you really have the time to do this. Um, You just need to be able to collect that semen for AI and characterize it. Basically figure out its possible quirks and make sure you actually know what you're looking at. And lucky for sharks, um, a lot of this work and successful artificial inseminations have actually already been done on a small handful, including our white-spotted bamboo shark and one species of skate, including a non-lethal method of elasmo sperm collecting that was developed a few years ago.
0: Well, good. I mean, we don't want lethal sperm collecting.
1: No, I'm very glad that method was actually developed. Uh, we'll actually we be talking that, about
0: we, we call that the praying mantis method.
1: <laughs> no more praying mantis method. Uh, that's one of the <laughs> big developments. Um, however, all of those artificial inseminations—just to find my own rule uh, were are done using freshly collected, <laughs> freshly collected sperm. That's a that's a pair of words that I wrote. Um, meaning that sharks still have to be transported.
0: Morning. I'm sorry. What? What? <laughs>
1: Fresh sperm of the morning, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a problem because no one really knows whether sperm from a shark can be uh, put in, in into cold storage or not, which is really vital for me being able to move that sperm instead of the shark.
0: Yeah, which is interesting because, I mean, it does seem like it's a good candidate considering the sharks can store it for up to four months and they don't have refrigeration, so.
1: That's a good point I actually didn't think about. It. Thank you for saying that.
0: You're welcome.
1: Yeah, and that is where our authors come in. So, um, the authors of this episode study set out with five primary goals in mind. This was an ambitious project. Five, one, uh, five One, five goals. The first goal, modify the sperm collection protocol for success in white-spotted bamboo sharks. Good. Two, identify and mitigate the long-term effects of cold temperatures on said sperm.
0: Making sure they can travel cold, yep.
1: hmm Three. Successfully inseminate bamboo females with both fresh and stored sperm, just to see how they work against each other.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, you gotta have the control in there.
1: hmm mm-hmm. Four. De- I just put up five, even though I'm at four. Um, develop DNA fingerprints to track who gives birth to who, because um, no one's actually done that specifically for white-span <laughs> <laughs> White-spotted <laughs> bamboo sharks. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's been really hot today, folks. Um... <laughs>
0: Yeah, last time we recorded it was allergies. Today it's humid. Jared and I are being attacked by climate change.
1: Yes. Maybe. Um, you-,
0: you have been personally victimized by climate change today. Mm-hmm. Raising. I'm raising my hands. Okay.
1: Oh boy. <laughs> and um, five, determine the rate at which Parthenogen. Wait, I didn't finish four. Uh, four didn't. was. What?
0: You didn't finish it. I-
1: before it was developed, DNA fingerprints, uh, specifically for white spotted bamboo sharks, so we know uh, who gives birth to who. And lastly, determine the rate at which parthenogenesis might occur in general in white spotted bamboo sharks.
0: Okay, that one seems like a little out of left field. There's no sperm involved, but like exactly. But <laughs> why not throw it in there? Sure. Yeah,
1: they had time, so they did it. Um, and this is what they did. Th- <laughs> so they did. It,
0: and this is what they did.
1: I'm reading my notes and laughing. Um, throughout the course of the year, this is how we mature. I am a grand total of 82 ej- ejaculates were collected from 19 uh, male bamboo sharks.
0: That was ejaculates oh. for those of you who could not hear through Jared's Jared's stifled laughter. Is that
1: not a funny word? That's a funny word.
0: Of course, it is.
1: Yeah. Yes, thank you. For everything
0: that. to do with the peepee is quite funny. <laughs> good point.
1: Yes. Um, so. Um, All of those 19 sharks were housed at AZA-accredited aquariums, including Ripley's Aquarium and the Aquarium of the Pacific. To achieve collection. (laughs) To achieve collection. Uh, That was supposed to be a joke, like achieve orgasm.
0: (laughs) I see. To achieve collection.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I should have proofread this before I actually did this episode. Anyway, um, uh, two different methods for that collection were tested. The first involving um, anesthetizing and inserting a catheter into males to tap the stuff straight from the seminal source. Ow. Ow, indeed. Um, the second, termed manual expression, was done by quickly lifting a male upside down. Um, upside down actually puts them in this sort of, like, catatonic state.
0: Mm-hmm. Not catatonic. Just tonic. I thought that was
1: like... Oh. I didn't know there was a difference. Okay, tonic state.
0: Tonic- um <laughs> Continue.
1: (laughs) Yes. Uh, Quickly lifting the male upside down and out of the water, uh, draining the seawater from its vent. That's like the shark butthole. um, And putting pressure on the area immediately above where its pelvic fins attach to... Basically, that draws the sperm right out. Just put pressure on both sides, push up a little, you get the sperm.
0: That's how they like it. Okay.
1: Exactly. (laughs) For its comparative ease, efficiency, and not needing to knock the sharks out first... Manual expression quickly became the go-to collection method, uh, to the delight of probably at least one of the researchers. If that feels...
0: Course, I think, I mean, <laughs> manual collection sounds much more comfortable than a catheter.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, if that does feel a little bit overly unsettling, um, keep in mind uh, that elazer of course, do enter that sort of tonic state when turned upside down. And also the fact that sharks, like most animals, don't actually have sex for pleasure. So, you know, they weren't like... in.
0: That's important to remember. Like a shark peepee is real tough. Yes, exactly. It's not sensitive. It is not a sensitive organ like the one that you might know and love.
1: It is not. That's actually how they uh, determined the males for the study were mature based on the mineralization of their claspers, which are the two paired shark dicks.
0: Yes. Uh, Mineralization. Yeah, it literally gets like calcified.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. This was a fun read. Um, every single sperm sample collected, um, from either method used was deemed completely normal upon analysis. So like, there was no difference between the physical look of the sperm from these collected samples versus like a normal sperm sample that's, that's also been studied. Oh, cool. Indeed. Uh, sperm cells either floated around individually or were, this was really interesting. They were held together in these little sheaths called, um, oh, get ready for an obnoxious jargon, spermatozugmata.
0: spermatozigmata A little short. Fun word.
1: Yeah. It's like a little sheath of sperm. Sheef. They shed the sheath and then they just go their little swimming ways.
0: All right, so they they have a club.
1: They have <laughs> the sperm as a club. Yes. Um, well, I guess they all have a club at the tip because, like the 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 cell part that's not the tail.
0: Oh, I'm at a club like an organization, like a like. Oh, a I club, know. I like... was
1: just veering off left course. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. All right.
0: Do <laughs> we need to go back to our penguin place? <laughs>
1: We'll see. We're actually almost done.
0: And so are the sharks. Hey, okay.
1: <laughs> oh, dear Lord. To figure out how to store the sperm cold, uh, samples were put into one of three treatments. Being stored with nothing added, being stored in artificial seawater, or stored in what's called Hank's Balanced Salt Solution. Which is just what? like a much more... Hank is for some reason a last name of that one scientist. It's like a very, very like salt-balanced so- so solution that was adjusted to what the shark would like.
0: Wait, can you say what it's called again? Like... Hank's
1: Balanced Salt Solution.
0: Hank's Balanced Salt Solution. That sounds, it sounds like a
1: homeopathic remedy, honestly. It
0: sounds like that, that one's soap. Like Dr. Bronner's
1: soap. Oh, it really does.
0: Yeah, that one. Or, from Arrested Development, um, like the, the Family Ban Solution. <laughs> Why did you say Family Ban Solution? I don't know. Okay,
1: continue. There's always money in the banana stand. Um... <laughs> So, um, using these three treatments, the difference between the sperm alone and in either solution was pretty dramatic. Um, with the treated sperm, that's the sperm in the solutions, remaining mobile longer, they swam longer, they declined slower, they showed less damage over time, and they showed more active movement every time, uh, the samples were inspected over a period of 18 days.
0: All right, so they liked the solution. They liked yeah. spermin and Hank's special fun time band.
1: They did. They did like Hank's special fun time band. <laughs> <laughs> now it came for the most important test, seeing if the stored sperm could successfully inseminate a female. And could it? Yes and no. Um, so inseminations uh, using fresh or stored sperm were pre- pre- performed on a total of 20 female bamboo sharks. Uh, the process took around 10 minutes for each shark and didn't cause any adverse effects that they uh, could see. And then they waited for the shark pups, or lack thereof. So they actually did have to wait a really long time for their results uh, because of that sperm storage of the white-spotted bamboo sharks. They had to wait to see um, if all the samples would actually bear fruit. Um, But after 153 days, the results, again, were very clear. While there were stark differences between inseminations with fresh sperm and sperm-stored long-term, the results from sperm stored for only 48 hours turned out to be quite promising. And even better, sperm stored for only 24 hours produced basically the same results as the fresh stuff. Even when shipped overnight from another aquarium.
0: Oh, that's great news!
1: Exactly. Um, overall, 15 of those 20 females produced a total of 114 fertile eggs, with 97 of them developing successfully. And only slightly more pups resulting from the fresh sperm uh, inseminations compared to the cold stored sperm.
0: Wow, that's really good!
1: It really is. So, yeah, it worked. It, it worked like a charm.
0: Wow, good for the white spotted bamboo sharks. Mm hmm. Wow. That's
1: really Indeed. exciting. Yeah. Uh, we uh, still at the Parthenogenesis, though. Oh. Oh, you're right. Okay. As for Parthenogenesis, uh, this was estimated by collecting a total of 1,053 eggs laid over 105 days from an enclosure housing uh, a lot of females, about 48 sharks. Wow. hmm Big, 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 big enclosure. <laughs> What's up?
0: I'm guessing that's Ripley's.
1: Probably Ripley's. Ripley's is huge. Yeah. Um, there there were, like, three other aquariums I neglected to mention because I've never heard of them personally, but it could have happened there, too. Okay, well. Also, sorry to those aquariums. I love you. I'll put you in the show notes. <laughs> love you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yes, of those 1,053 eggs, 28 were fertile. So, 28 instances of possible parthenogenesis. They didn't know totally because of sperms could have been stored.
0: Well, over a period of how much time?
1: This was 105 days.
0: Wow. That is a lot of parthenogenesis.
1: It is. Um, now, of those 28 fertile eggs, um, only five pups successfully hatched. Um, and they were able to actually do DNA testing of most of those fertile eggs. Um, a lot of them they couldn't actually get viable DNA from for some reason. But um, all five of those pups were parthenodes, as well as nine of the unhatched embryos.
0: Wow. That is that is much more than I would have expected.
1: Yeah, that's about 1.1% of all the, of all the eggs.
0: Yeah. So, like, that makes parthenogenesis for white-spotted bamboo sharks pretty common.
1: Yeah. And it might even be more common because um, the office made a point to note that they didn't think that all the females were actually reliably producing during that span. So it could have been a much higher incidence if all the sharks were actually laying at once.
0: Yeah. Wow. But yeah,
1: um, 1, 1.1% is probably very much an underestimation.
0: So, like, at at an aquarium... Um, where I have worked, like they do collect all of the eggs in the all-female shark habitat every single day. And, you know, I- I've always heard that it's like on the off chance that one of them is fertilized. And in my head, it's always been like, maybe that happens like once or twice a year, but it seems like for the white spotted bamboo sharks, it happens 48 times in a hundred days. <laughs>
1: yeah, seriously. I think part of it is, is the fact that they are such like prolific, prolific egg layers, but yeah, still true.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Indeed. Good for, good for those shark ladies.
1: Good for those shark ladies. Yeah. But what, Madison, do we take from all of this? Question mark.
0: What do we take from all of this? Um,
1: well, were you going to guess or can I do my thing? You do your <laughs> Well, for one thing, uh, keeping the genetic diversity of captive sharks healthy just got a hell of a lot easier. Thanks to our author's pioneering work in the cold storage of sharks' These are literally the first people to try this sort of science. Um, it's been done on like one species of stingray, but not at all besides that.
0: It's not much, but it's honest work.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> thanks to our pioneering authors. Now, while sperm content is certain to vary amongst shark species, this work at least proves that AI using sperm that is at least 48 hours old is possible, meaning much less shuttling shark tanks back and forth between aquariums in the future. And let us also mention that this work would not have been possible uh, in the first place without the aquariums that allowed that work to happen.
0: It's true. It's true. And aquariums are really, have really been suffering the last 14 months.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) Something major.
0: Yes. Um, You know, as, you know, public-facing institutions that get the majority of their revenue from visitors, um, you know, it's been, uh, it's been a pandemic. So
1: Support the
0: aquarium. They do really good research. Um, and, you know, there's shark sperm there. So, like, go learn about
1: it. <laughs> no, what's not to love?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have actually, I have one more fun fact for whoever got to the end of this episode. Oh, what is it? This one's really gross. Are you ready?
0: Oh, a gross fun fact at the end of the shark sperm episode. I am ready.
1: So this one's about human sperm, but it's also about blowflies. Oh, no. So do you know what a blowfly is?
0: A blowfly, you've asked me this before and I got it wrong.
1: (laughs) So blowflies are one of those organisms of death. They're attracted to death and decay and they're some of the first insects to show up in a dead body.
0: Yes, blowflies are the ones that forensic entomologists use to figure out how long a dead body has been dead.
1: Exactly. Um, They also have to be really, really careful of blowflies because their poop looks a lot like blood. And depending on where you find that blood, you do have to do a lot of further testing to make sure that it actually is blood and not blowfly crap.
0: Okay, so what does this have to do with sperm?
1: Okay, so blowflies really love sperm. It's like, there was a study where where they they were offered like every sort of biological human substance and sperm is by far their favorite. But they also found out that when hmm? the...
0: Blowflies love sperm.
1: Blowflies love sperm.
0: Happy pride.
1: (laughs) Happy pride. (laughs) (laughs) They also found out though, that when a blowfly consumes a sperm sample, there's like a 99% chance that their poop is going to leave that human's DNA inside of it. When they consume blood, there's like a 50% chance. Other fluids, it's the, it's the same amount of chance. But for sperm, there's like a 99% chance that that DNA is going to be recorded in the poop.
0: So like blowflies can frame a murderer?
1: Yes. Now that said, doctor- is it really that likely that a blowfly is going to go into someone's house where he's been having a little fun, eat some of the sperm, and go somewhere else to, to a crime scene? It's probably not likely, but it can happen.
0: I want to see see this Making a Murderer documentary. (laughs) I need it.
1: Oh, That would be interesting. A
0: crossover of my interests.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, on this wild ride of tangents, I think that's all I got for you.
0: Yeah. Well, that was fascinating. Really, really interesting stuff. Um I'm proud of myself that I made it through this whole episode without revealing that I once had a dream that I was artificially inseminated with shark sperm.
1: Huh? I did. You're just going to yes. drop that bombshell right before we leave.
0: Yes, I am. Um, because it was when I was an intern at an aquarium and, you know. Um,
1: <laughs> I didn't have those dreams when I was an intern. <laughs>
0: uh, I have a wild imagination. And you do. I, I don't know how it happened in my brain, but... <laughs> in my in my dream like i was doing like an intern swap with in another department and they were doing research because the aquarium i worked at also has a species survival program for sharks and you know, and um we can cut all this <laughs> well,
1: we're not going to cut this this is staying in
0: okay um consider this a want ad for therapy
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's a really funny um podcast i listen to called comedy bang bang that they bring uh comedians on to do a lot of like improv stuff and there were these two people that came on and did like country people that did like weird songs that were pretty much about like making love to trucks um and there was one uh called human skin truck baby that maybe immediately reminded me of that your weird little human skin shark baby
0: oh you heard human human truck baby and you were like madison
1: <laughs> well no i heard that and then i heard this and I made me think of that but yes <laughs>
0: Incredible. So well, this is my favorite part of the episode where we just slowly descend into madness. Um, <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I
0: hope you have enjoyed this episode of Science and Podcast. Um, if you have suggestions for things you want us to cover in the future or feedback about this or any of our other episodes, talk to us. Um, like sharks, we don't bite unless provoked. Mm -hmm. so you can talk to us um we have an email it's podcast at science in pictures.com uh we also are on social media we are science and pictures on nope we are science and podcast on facebook and we are science underscore in underscore podcast on instagram dm us um you know tell your your friends about us and um it really helps if you subscribe and download our episodes Absolutely. Thank you to those of you who've already done that. Thanks so much. And um, see you next week for more Wacky Shark Facts.
1: Yes, indeed. And uh, in case you didn't get the message, happy Pride and Shark Month.
0: Pride and sharks. Goodbye.
1: Goodbye.